Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, why do some of us metabolize caffeine more effectively than others? It's all down to genetics. And what does that mean when it comes to how many cups of coffee you can drink a day? We find out. Urban planner Brent Todrian joins us to dispel some of the myths out there surrounding this concept of the 15-minute city. You may have heard of it, saying it's actually about providing more freedom of choice, not less. We look into why far fewer permanent residents in this country are becoming Canadian citizens and what the impact of that is and what can we be doing better. But first, the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky announced that she'll be stepping down next month. Appointed in 2018, the force's first female leader has come under fire of late for the Mounties' handling of a number of crises. We look into the timing of her announcement, the impact, and what to look for in her successor. The RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky has announced that she's stepping down, and that's just days before the expected release of an inquiry report into the federal government's handling of the Freedom Convoy blockades and the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. She was appointed back in 2018, of course, to a lot of fanfare. She's the first woman to permanently hold the role. She's going to step down officially on March the 17th. She's faced a lot of criticism particularly of late, uh, for the handling of multiple crises, including the response to the so-called Freedom Convoy protests in Ottawa and at border crossings across the country, as well as the mass shootings in Nova Scotia, where she was accused of putting pressure on local RCMP officials to release the makes and models of the weapons used to further federal government gun control aims, an accusation she denied. There was never any direction provided, no interference, no political pressure. Was there pressure? Yeah, there was a lot of pressure, most of it coming from the media itself. But as far as um, what people think happened, it didn't. That was Brenda Lucky testifying at the uh, at the inquiry in Nova Scotia into that mass shooting. Uh, she said it was not an easy decision. This is all according to an internal memo first reported on today by the Toronto Star. Uh, she said she was brought in with a mandate to bring, quote, change and said she believes she accomplished much with her team within the organization. And she acknowledged that she'd faced multiple challenges. She didn't announce why she was leaving, by the way. Uh, Global News is reporting tonight that the government, according to multiple services, the government was not planning to extend her mandate. Here's NDP House Leader Peter Julian reacting to the news today on Parliament Hill. It is clear, though, over the period of her tenure at the RCMP that there are a number of issues that were not dealt with, the challenges that the RCMP faces uh, that have an impact on Canadian society. And the federal government needs to take good care to ensure that the next commissioner that steps up. So what to make of the resignation and in particular the timing? What impact will it have on the country's national police force? And what is Brenda Lucky's legacy? Always great to have Stephanie Carvin, an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa with us. Stephanie, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Yeah, did this catch you? I mean, I don't think it caught... Maybe the timing was a bit odd. I mean, I think it caught me off guard today, at least. Yeah, I think the timing is here is the issue. Now, this has happened before. Um, if people remember Daniel Jean, who was National Security Intelligence Advisor, he'd been in trouble because he was alleged to have been leaking information about uh, Trudeau's disastrous trip to India um, to the press in order to make the prime minister look good. It was like a huge scandal. Um 
And, and and I had been in a conference with Ms., Mr. Jean where he said, well, look, no, I'm retiring in the spring because my wife will divorce me if I keep going and I have grandchildren right. and I want to spend time with him. And when he retired, everyone's like, oh, is this because he's in trouble or things like that? No, it was literally just a retirement. So coincidences happen. And with Brenda Lucky, we do know, as you said in your introduction here, that she was not expected to be reappointed and it was expected that she would probably retire. However, we do also know that either on Friday or Monday, we are expecting the Public Order Emergency Commission report. This is the, um, you know, if, if everyone listening can think back to October, November of this year when we had the Emergencies Act inquiry, right, the Public Order Emergency Commission, um, they that report is coming out like in the next few days. And I strongly suspect it will not be kind to Brenda Lucky because of what we learned uh, and what she said she did um, in her testimony, which was which, which which we can get into and probably should get into. But the timing yeah. of that report may have something to do with her announcement. I, but you, one would expect, perhaps, that in her position, she would stand there, face the criticism defend herself and then retire, right? I mean, if this if this report's going to be critical of, of her and of the force, perhaps, uh, then maybe she should just wait around and, and explain, her, explain it to some extent. I suppose that might be a lot easier said than done. The critique was she wasn't sharing information in a timely fashion. Is that is that right? Um, yeah. So on that, on that particular issue, so there's a number of issues here. And the fact that you laughed was saying that Kind of maybe answers that question. I mean, I mean, it's just, this is not an organization that's known for wanting to stand up and take punches, right? Um, the RCMP no. is not great at that. Um, so, yeah, but specifically what I was referring to was during, um, you know, the end of the Public Order Emergency Commission. So, like, the last, it was in, like, gosh, that thing went on for, like, six weeks. And um, in some of the last testimony we heard, which was from her, we found out that she did not tell cabinet that the police had put a plan in place to remove the protesters and why that decision, why that failing to tell cabinet that was so important because cabinet felt it had to act because they didn't think there was a plan. Well, it's one of the reasons they felt they had to act. They felt that, you know, cabinet felt that they needed to invoke the emergencies act because they they felt that you know police were floundering there was nothing happening there was no nothing in place and then she goes up in the stands and says oh yeah we had a plan and they said well did you yeah. tell anyone and she goes no and i mean at that point i mean i was literally on live tv shortly after that and i'm like i don't know how this woman has a job because well it's just yes. insane and and then there was the whole issue that she'd come under fire just the weeks prior to that about uh allegations, at least from the RCMP in Nova Scotia, that she leaned on them to release the makes and models of those weapons, as I was mentioning earlier, used in that mass shooting um, to forward, essentially because Ottawa wanted to wanted it out there for to advance its gun control legislation. Now, she explains, she again, under testimony, under uh, at an inquiry, sort of uh, testified to the opposite. But again, she took a lot of she took a lot of knocks in the last six months. Yeah, she did. And yeah, so that particular inquiry, I mean, we can get into the whole like response of the RCMP in Nova Scotia to the shooting incident, which was, again, just a, like a, just unbelievable decisions being made. Now, to be fair, that was done at the provincial policing level, not the federal level. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
I think the point that you're trying to make here, and, and it's an important one, and what connects the failure of the Public Order Emergency Commission to the failure um, of potential, you know, gun, you know, the decision about like uh, leaking stuff about guns was it, it's this issue of police independence, right? And the issue of police police independence is this idea. And, and, and again, I'm not trying to defend anything. I'm not trying to make claims either or. But it's this principle we have that politicians should not be able to order police around what to do because we are not an authoritarian state and, you know, we don't have politicians order the police to arrest their enemies. That's what Putin does. That's not what we do. And so you, there has to be a supervision, there has to be oversight, and there has to be accountability. But by and large, operational decisions are left to the police and and the one and and so but at the same time the police can't be seen as doing the the bidding of their political masters in order to curry favor right so i think in the case of nova scotia we see that as kind of a politicization because it looked like she was trying to help get legislation passed which police never should do right that's a violation of police independence and then in the case of the public order, you know, when it came to the Emergencies Act and withholding significant information about a very important decision that's about to be made to invoke Canada's emergency legislation for the first time, um, that was probably a poor judgment as well. But maybe she held back because she was afraid that or, or felt that, you know, politicians should not know operational information regardless of, of the circumstances. So I would say in both cases, I think she got the issue of police independence wrong. And they were in two very big cases that mattered. And that's a very bad thing. Stephanie Carvin of Carleton University is with us this half hour. We're talking about the resignation today, or at least she's announced she's resigning. That will take effect next month. Brenda Lucky, the RCMP commissioner after a pretty bruising 12 months. Uh, so Stephanie, what happens next? I mean, there is so much work still to be done. She talked today about having accomplished what she, at least part of what she'd hoped to. Is that a fair assessment of her own performance, do you think? No. Uh, no, it's not. In a word. Um, In a word. I mean, and, and to be fair, there, to be fair to Brenda Lucky, the RCMP is a job bigger than one commissioner, right? It, there's just so many issues. Um, there was a report that came. I mean, we haven't even touched on the indigenous issues. Um, you know, some very serious accusations about the treatment of indigenous peoples at the hands of RCMP police officers. Um, we, there was a Barstash report that came out, I think I'm saying that right, um, a few years ago and, and described the culture of the RCMP as toxic, right? And I think there was some hope by the Trudeau government, okay, well, let's appoint a woman and maybe she can fix it. And no, I mean, there's an institutional problem with the RCMP. It is, um, you know, it's part of our history, right? Um, you know, we're recognized worldwide by the red coats and the tan hats and, and horses and things like this. So, you know, we're not trying to downplay that. But at the same time, this is a police force that was designed for the 1870s and not, um, you know, uh, it, it, is it a federal police force that's designed to look at cybercrime, to look at um, sanctions issues, to look at national security policing, and all these kinds of, uh, of challenging issues. Um, you know, I mean, we, need, we don't need people. You know, one of the challenges I think we have with the RCMP is their model. It's a generalist model where you go 
to depot, right, you get trained up, and then chances are you're probably going to spend the first five to ten years in a remote community doing policing, right? And then you're going to be suddenly dropped in the middle of Ottawa where you're going to be put on an espionage operation. And you're probably not going to be given any training. You're probably going to be learned to do it on the job. And the nature of our threats are so very complex and difficult that, you know, you can't just do on-the-job training with, like, when you're doing very complex, for example, child export um child exploitation material online, right? I mean, that's going to be hard. Um, yeah. The kind of difficult financial issues. So all of these things, they require specialists. In other countries, they train their people up. They have a dedicated police force to do this. So, you know, um, you know, just to wrap this up, uh, we, you know, we need to rethink RCMP training. We need to think, should the RCMP still be in the business of provincial policing, right? I know that's been a bigger issue out West than it has been, you know, more in central Canada. Um, all these, and then the cultural issues, the reconciliation issues that Peter Julian, the, the member of parliament, pointed out, very much stand. I mean, this is huge. We need a major rethink of federal policing in this country. And I suppose it's far too much to expect one person caught in Ottawa, you know, under that vice of politics and policing, which we know, I mean, no matter how much people want to say the commissioner's job is not political, it is always political, right? Um, yes. And I guess the next, that balance yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess the next the next commissioner will have to be someone who maybe understands that in a slightly more nuanced way. I, I think so. But I mean, I just feel like whoever I mean, it's a poison challenge, honestly, like it's a, maybe there's people who are ambitious enough to try and take it on. But at the end of the day, we need to basically reset. I mean, this, this is my view. We need to reset how we do federal policing in this country. Right. Um, I don't know if you can run a police, you know. I sometimes say this online and it's mean and I guess, you know, to organizations, but like the, the RCMP exists because of colonialism and tourism. And I think and inertia. And those are the three things that kind of keep it going. And we need to rethink it. You know, we need to rethink what these federal police agencies, what we want them to do when, when addressing complex threats. Um, you know, I've been on your show talking about espionage, foreign interference, violent extremism. And we do a really bad job of prosecuting those things. And we don't want to fall behind. We want to keep Canada safe. And as a result, we need to rethink about how we do it. But do we want to go with the conventional policing model, given all the conversations we're having about policing right now, about, um, you know, the concerns, again, coming out of reconciliation, coming out of Black Lives Matter? This needs to be taken into consideration. And, and again, so I look at this one poor, I'm going to use the word schmuck, who's going to be put in this role <laughs> And ask to change and fix all of this. And it's just not yeah. going to happen. It feels like, once again, Brenda Lucky, I mean, there were, there were faults made, obviously. But once again, it's all that idea that one person could be such a vehicle for change when, as you point out so correctly, the entire culture can be the problem. And the leadership sometimes is both a reflection of, of the good and the bad. And in this case, I guess we'll, we'll assess that. And I'll look forward to seeing this report to see what it says about, about the Commissioner's Act or the Commissioner's actions as well. Stephanie Carvin, thank you so much, as always. Hey, thanks for having me on. And let me rant. It's fun. I found this to be a surprising stat. Since 2001, the percentage of permanent residents who become Canadians has plummeted. The Institute for Canadian Citizenship says StatsCan data points to a 40% decline in citizenship uptake since the turn 
of this century. So why the drop and what impact is it having on this country at the very time Ottawa is looking to boost immigration by welcoming 1.45 million, nearly 1.5 million permanent residents over the next three years? Daniel Bernhardt is the CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, rather, and he joins me now. Daniel, thank you. Thanks for having me, Ben. You know, I was surprised by these stats, but I suppose given uh, this is something we've been watching unfold for a while, maybe we shouldn't be. What do you think is going on? Well, uh, you know, should is a difficult word. I I have to confess, I was also surprised by these stats, even though I spend all day every day advancing the cause of citizenship. I hear the stories, the horror stories that people have, the difficulties that people have. And even still, I was surprised. Canada has been built for centuries on this idea that people don't just come here to live and work, but to build their house and their business and their family and their future as Canadians to become Canadians. And if that machine of renewal is starting to slow down or break down, it could have really serious implications for for our future. And these numbers, I think, kind of shock us because they, they question a core tenet of what we understand being Canadian really means welcoming people who want to be on Team Canada. So I think you're you're completely within your rights to be shocked. I, I was too. Yeah, when I asked around, because I know people who have their permanent residence who have not become Canadian citizens, often some of the reasoning is that other countries have become stricter about dual nationality, right? Countries like China, for instance. Uh, but there must be something bigger going on here. You're right. One always assumed you'd get your permanent residence and you'd become a Canadian citizen after a certain period of time. And that seems to have fallen off. What are some of the hypotheses that you have around why? And you mentioned you sort of alluded to it earlier, which is the difficulties. Right. So I mean, you mentioned, of course, restrictions on dual nationality in some other countries. There are difficulties dealing with the federal government in terms of processing times and processing fees and stuff like that. Um, but there are the other aspects, which are just the experience of Canadian life. Uh, underemployment, we know, is a huge problem among newcomers. When my parents came to Canada in the 1970s from South America, They spoke no English. One had a high school degree. One had no high school degree. Um, Their expectations were accordingly very modest. Now we're accepting people to come to the country who are way better educated, way more qualified, were very senior professionally in their country of origin. Their expectations are different. Life in Canada is, of course, as you know, very expensive. So um, I think the changing caliber of newcomers is also part of this story. We have succeeded in many ways in um, persuading the best and the brightest from around the world to come here. But in large respect, our immigration system or the integration system, everything that happens after you arrive, is still sort of geared towards people like my parents. And that disconnect needs to be bridged because we need these people to believe that they are Canadian. This is their place and these are my people. That's the only way that they'll contribute to our shared success with all they've got. And that's what our future requires. Yeah, I imagine so many of our families have similar stories to yours over the generations. But but you're right. These days, people who come, a lot of people come here with lots of education and lots of options, right? So if they don't like it here, there's a lot of other places they can pack up and go to very quickly. I think you're right in 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 theory. I mean, uh, picking up your life and your family is not a simple proposition. Um, but you're you're correct that there are other countries that are catching up. This is a global competition for. For talent. Look, I don't want to um, be too extreme. I mean, Canada still remains a fantastic place for people to stay. Pathways to citizenship remain open. I mean, compared to countries like Germany, for example, where you can live three or four generations there without being a citizen, um, our citizenship uptake still 
looks pretty good. But I think we have a self-understanding as being a welcoming country because we are in our hearts. But, you know, our values don't necessarily just become reality because we feel them sincerely. And so newcomers are telling us here that their reality of Canada is different to the one I believe that most Canadians want to provide. And in this way, this is not just a reflection on newcomers' experience, but actually a, a very startling reflection on Canada and what it's become and what it needs to be again. So I think that's part of the reason why this story has traveled so far. It shocks a lot of people, and it really hits at the core of a, a tenet of our identity. Yeah. I, I, what can we do, at least in the short term, to try to, to, to rectify this in some ways? Uh, clearly, clearly, if we want to attract a lot more permanent residents, with the expectation, I assume, that they become, not all of them, but that a proportion of them become citizens, uh, we may need to do better. I think we absolutely need to do better. And um, I think that everyone has their role to play. I mean, the obvious one, of course, is government in terms of making it easier for people to apply and all that kind of stuff. But I don't want to pin this too much uh, uh, on on bureaucrats. I think businesses have a role to play. You know, we talk about a labor shortage across the economy, and yet we also know that there are people who are doing menial jobs who have skills um, which are far above uh, those positions. So maybe the labor shortage is not as real as we think. Maybe it's just that employers are not looking hard enough at what immigrants have to offer. And of course, um, from civil society perspective, we have a program called the Canoe Access Pass which gives new permanent residents free entry to over 1,400 uh, national parks, science centers, museums, galleries, et cetera, for them and a family of four, discounts with Via Rail, Air Canada, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as a way of having fantastic welcoming experiences in Canada. And I would encourage any business owner, civil society leader uh, who's listening tonight um, to get in touch with us because if your heart is in the right place and all the polling suggests that that it, it will likely be, it's tough for you to actually put those values into action. What are you going to do about it? You don't have many options. Through Canoe, you can. You can offer benefits to newcomers. You can be part of this national welcome network that we've built and continue to expand. And that's just another way that well-meaning Canadians, of which there are so many, can put those values into action and recover our long history of citizenship uh, for, for future generations. Daniel Bernhardt, thank you so much for sharing this. It is a fascinating stat and uh, something we should really be paying attention to. Well, I look forward to following up with you, and thank you so much for having me. You know, I've spent most of my life living in inner cities. I grew up in Montreal. I lived in Ottawa, Toronto, London, Beijing, Edinburgh, Edmonton, Ottawa. Ottawa, I probably already mentioned, Victoria now. And for most of that time, I've always been able to walk to almost everything I needed. And it's a great thing. It's a great thing. It's also part of a concept, and this is it's a broader concept than this, called the 15-minute city. It's essentially supposed to allow you to get almost all that you need within sort of a 15-minute walk or cycle. That means, you know, groceries, uh, services, medical services, every just about everything you could think of that you need in your day-to-day -day existence, you could get within that short uh, commute. And on foot as well. It was first articulated in 2016. It's not a new idea, but this particular way of, uh, of talking about it was first conceptualized or articulated in 2016 by an urban planner named Carlos Moreno. He's a scientific director and professor specializing in complex systems and innovation at the Sorbonne in Paris, who now serves as the mayor of Paris, a special envoy for smart cities. I call it the 15-minute city. And in a nutshell, the idea is that cities should be designed 
or redesigned so that within the distance of a 15-minute walk or bike ride, people should be able to leave the essence of what constitutes the urban experience. Now, I think this is a great idea because I've spent most of my life doing just that, right? And I know how difficult it is for most people. I mean, anytime you work, most people you know commute long distances uh, to do just about anything. And, you know, there's a whole many reasons for that. But this is a whole concept has suddenly turned into some kind of, I mean, there are those who see a threat here for some reason, a limit to freedoms. Part of it has to do with the fact that it involves sort of limiting traffic within urban centers in certain areas. Certainly the city of Oxford in England that was looking at doing this has sort of restricted when you can move your cars into certain neighborhoods. Um, and, and that's seen as sort of an infringement on freedom. Part of it started off, too, with a tweet from Jordan Peterson, who you may know of, uh, psychologist, author, controversial commentator, 3.8 million followers on Twitter. So when he tweets, people listen, so to speak. He wrote, the idea that neighborhoods should be walkable is lovely. He, in fact, lives in one in Toronto. Uh, the idea that idiot, tyrannical bureaucrats can decide by fiat where you're allowed to drive is perhaps the worst imaginable perversion of that idea. And make no mistake. It's part of a well-documented plan. So people see people see control here in this, what seems like a very lovely idea of having 15-minute cities. So much so that Andrew Knack, a city of Edmonton councillor and proponent of lining his city's zoning bylaws with this whole notion of a 15-minute uh, city, uh, had to issue a clarification on social media after another tweet came out um, similar to, to Jordan Peterson's that caused confusion and misinformation. Uh, Andrew Knack spoke with Shay Gannon this morning in Alberta. This is honestly a very small group of people. They can be very loud, mm -hmm. but, you know, I was out door knocking the last two Fridays, and you know how many times it came up? Zero, because right. the, most people don't care and they just want things close by. But for this small group of people, they have a, a genuine fear of governments. So let's try and clear this up for you. Uh, what is the concept? And just importantly, what isn't it? Uh, Brent Todrian is perhaps best placed to talk about this. He's an urbanist and city planner with Todrian Urban Works. He's also uh, advised cities around the world on how to make their areas more livable and for their citizens. And he joins me now. Uh, Brent, thank you so much. Hi, Ben. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, you know, this is just a, a good time to talk about urban planning. I love urban planning, having, as I mentioned, having grown up in all these in all these cities that are all different from each other, and yet somehow the, the good things work the same way in a lot of them, right? But tell me a bit about this whole concept. I mean, you, I guess we're talking about it because it has a bit of a catchy slogan, but it feels like this idea has been around for a very long time. Well, and a lot longer than 2016 when Carlos branded it the 15-minute city, and I think cleverly associated the concept of things being local with your walking speed. Right. And, um, you know, the idea that it's a way of describing that things, uh, you should have the things you need be local, so you have the choice. And this is really about more choice, more freedom, where you can access things if you want to, by car or by rolling in terms of wheelchair, wheelchair access or or biking or even public transit and not be dependent on the car and of course since the 1960s we've been designing communities that are largely dependent on cars uh, with the narrative that that leads to freedom but it sure ain't free if you don't want to drive or if you can't drive so this is about fundamentally about choice and we've been talking about the idea of mixed use um, uh, diverse communities forever and of course communities used to be this way just normally 
Um, you know, whether the term is complete communities or mixed-use communities or the city of short distances, there's actually been a lot of ways of describing this concept for probably thousands, not, not just hundreds of years. But what's new is Paris branded it in a way that got a lot of mayors' attention because their mayor included it in her re-election campaign, and she was overwhelmingly re-elected in Paris. And that got a lot of mayors' attentions, and they thought, well, we need to uh, brand our conversations about how to do mixed communities in this better way, too. And that, that attention, that got the attention of the people like Jordan Peterson, because anything that... Right. That sort of government and sounds good. Frankly, they're going to go after it, and and so it became ironically an easy target uh, because of how successful it was in the media and getting uh, the public's attention. Yeah, the yin and yang of marketing, right? <laughs> for, yeah, and, for, and uh, you know, you you need brands to get people's attention and explain concepts in a simple way. But I've never seen, I got to say, I've been a city planner for 31 years. I've always tried to figure out clever ways to get the, the public's attention so you can have a more engaged conversation that includes everyone in city building. But I've never seen uh, the kind of conspiracy theories that we've usually equated to the conversation about, you know, chips in vaccines and such applied to a, a city planning concept. And, you know, I'm, ha- I'm always happy to talk about what it means, what it is and what it isn't. Uh, there's always good faith debate and, and even angry debate uh, between folks who think something's a good idea or not. But let's be really clear. The problem with this attack by the QAnons, by the conspiracy theorists, theory folks, is that it's based on deliberate lies uh, that are intended to confused to misinform and to frighten and anger and you can't have a serious conversation when people uh, have decided that they can't trust you you're lying and there's nothing you can say that can can uh, can um, inform or convince so and their tactics uh, have been about bullying and trying to shut down meetings shut down processes intimidate other voices etc it's analogous to the kinds of uh, processing we saw at hospitals during the vaccine uh, 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 discussions and such. So it's it's the very similar groups. uh, And and the counselor is right. It is a small group and it's the usual suspects in terms of um, folks who've applied this kind of tactic of misinformation and fear and then bullying tactics to other subject matter. And now they they're applying it to a city planning concept. So as a city planner for 31 years, it's, it's strange, it's bizarre. Uh, you know, uh, there was a social media commentator that said, what, we're afraid of reasonable walking distances now? I don't understand. Um, well, I mean, so it is bizarre, the, the, yeah. but we have to take it seriously because there are politicians out there being intimidated out of having the, the necessary conversations about how to make our communities better. Because, uh, you know, in this case, you need to have the conversations, right? I mean, when, when you start to, to what urban planning is all about consensus to some extent, that's the only way it'll really work. Uh, if you're trying to bring in new ideas, perhaps again, you're right. Perhaps what really is, is the trigger here is, is the catchphrase, right? Like everything, if you called it something else, like we're going to make your city more convenient so you could walk to walk to get your groceries and pick up all the stuff you need and maybe see a doctor too, if need be, then people would like it. 
right? I mean, that's well, but you know, there you can't just say, well, we'll change the catchphrase though, because they'll right. go after the next no. catchphrase, you know. So right. it's it it's what I like to say is, you know, in my thirty-one years, I've actually mm-hmm. of city planning, I've never seen consensus. Consensus suggests that everyone agrees. There is there's nothing wrong with disagreement. There's nothing wrong with good faith debate. There are people who like every idea and people who don't. And politicians ultimately have to listen, but they don't always, they, they, they rarely if ever achieve consensus, they have to make decisions where some people aren't going to agree. And that's yeah. healthy and that's necessary. And that's how planning city planning works. But, yeah, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure you and I have sat through breakdown. It, yeah. It's when the tactics are are outrageous and unreasonable, and the lying and the fear mongering and the rage farming is quite deliberate. It's a specific strategy. It's my pleasure to have Brent Todrian with us this half hour. He is an urbanist and city planner with Todrian Urban Works. We're talking about the whole concept of the 15-minute city, not a new idea, but a new catchphrase, so to speak. We've been talking about some of the controversy around it. Uh, Brett, a lot of what see, people seem to be up in arms, and I lived in London. They have a congestion fee in England, right, in the UK. Uh, that seems to work quite well. I mean, people moaned about it when they brought it in, but everyone seems to accept it now. Um, what, is the, what is the future, do you think, for congestion fees in cities when it comes to bringing cars in? And, and how much of that has been a trigger when it comes to the controversy over this idea? Well, when you, when you look back and try to figure out where this controversy first started, it, it, it's possible that it originated in the UK. I think you mentioned Oxford, um, uh, but because they were they started a conversation about the 15 minute city quite a while after already uh, having a discussion and, and actual actions around what you call traffic restrictions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people either accidentally or deliberately equated the two that, you know, the 15 minute city means traffic restrictions. And let's be clear, it doesn't. The, the two things are different things that seek to do different things like traffic res- restrictions in the context of what was going on in the UK are actually quite familiar to us Canadians. If you think about any place where the city has tried to address the issue of through traffic or what's called rat running. Uh, you're talking to me from central uh, inner city Vancouver, where a lot of the, the old established neighborhoods have gone through kind of closing off of, of, of streets to prevent that kind of busy congestion of through traffic, people trying to get to work, cutting through local and residential streets. And so it's become, it's for years and even decades been a common thing to try to address uh, through traffic and, and sort of divert traffic to the busier roads that can accommodate that kind of traffic. It's pretty normal. It's, it's also extremely popular. If you're anyone who lives in those neighborhoods, you know, your favorite thing is to make sure the kids are the streets are safer for your kids because uh, you don't have all that fast through traffic trying to jet through your neighborhood. So the UK was doing that in the context of, I think it was called something like low traffic neighborhoods, which was just another way of branding the idea of preventing rat running. But that got equated with uh, the 15-minute the city concept, which it isn't. And then it got lied about. It got, um, it, you know, it, instead of uh, doing sort of reasonable changes to address the amount of through traffic and, and diverting traffic to other places, the narrative became you're not going to be allowed to drive there at all. You're going to be forced on a bike. You're going to be you're only going to be able to allow be allowed to shop in the in the 
uh, stores and, and services in your neighborhood. You're going to need a permit to leave your neighborhood. And then they even language, I've seen language uh, 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 strongly stated about turning your neighborhood into concentration camps. This is going to be I mean, like it, the Hunger Games. Yeah, so, it goes so it's it, so over the top. It's so over the top. It, it, so it, it goes to the let, point be, where... You know, let's be honest, this is all untrue, right? The same thing. They, they equate the two things that aren't the same thing. And then right. they, they don't just exaggerate to the point of ridiculousness. It's, a lot of it is outright lies. And I've decided right. I'm not going to be shy about that language because, you know, folks who are doing this know that if you're calling me up and saying, can you explain 15-minute cities? There's, there's an old uh, political adage called, if you're explaining you're already losing because their True lie enough. gets more attention than your truth, right? Yeah. So, so I that decided said, I'm going to be pushing back on, on the lies and calling them out for what they are. That being said, I also want to talk about urban planning. So this is a good excuse to talk about how to build a more livable city. And, and you've forwarded a lot of these ideas over the years that, you know, cutting down on the amount of, of through traffic in cities just makes sense. Building areas where you can get to and fro on your on by foot or on bike just makes sense for congestion, period. You often tweeted this great image where showing just how much room cars take up, even in our urban, even in our most sort of quiet, serene urban environments. Well, the irony is anyone who understands cities and geometry knows that if we all try to drive, none of us can move. It just doesn't fit. When you think about the population of a city, an urban city, even before population growth, it's going to happen. If all the existing and new people try to drive, it's going to be gridlock. So the irony is when you design a city for cars, it fails for everyone, including drivers. And anyone who understands cities knows that. Whereas if you design a city that's multimodal, that makes walking and biking and public transit as attractive options as possible for everyone, then if you're someone who does want to or need to drive, the city's going to work better for you because you're not fighting for that finite space with everybody else's big vehicles. So multimodal cities work better for everyone, including drivers. So you know, there's a lot of narratives that overlap where, you know, you can attack the 15-minute city and, and often there's the rhetoric that, that talks about the war on the car. If we're trying to make biking and walking better, it's a war on the car. When anyone who understands geometry knows the more people you can get walking, biking, and transit, the more trips that can happen in a city with less space, less public costs, less emissions, better public health, and actually it's easier to drive because you're not competing with everybody else's SUVs and pickup trucks. And I mean, it feels like we're having that conversation at least. I mean, it's being talked about thus so many mayors around the world interested in this. And I realize it's trendy, but so many mayors around the world interested in this very idea that was brought up in Paris. Well, and it's because she did it. So uh, she packaged the idea so well, she was bold enough to include a planning concept front and center in her re-election campaign, which I got to tell you, it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, Marion Hidalgo, and, and yes, it, of course. And it worked. It was popular. People said, yes, I do want these things. And so politicians notice anytime politicians figure out a way to, um, to succeed in talking about things that are usually kind of boring to talk about. So, yeah, yeah it, it, it was very this concept that we city planners had been putting into plans and talking about at public hearings and meetings and such for decades, if forever, suddenly became 
quite sexy. It became quite interesting. The media liked to talk about it, and other politicians wanted to get in on that action. And Uh, the key is, of course, to not try to take a one-size-fits-all approach. A a concept of local things in your neighborhood in a city like Paris is going to be really different than it will be in a city like Edmonton. And and even the Paris folks say, you know, don't copy our ideas verbatim. Talk to your communities, understand what local needs mean to your community, and figure out a made in Edmonton or a made in Ottawa or a made in Vancouver approach. But the key is that this is always about choice. Just because you're making, uh, you're giving the choice for people to walk and bike to the things they need doesn't mean they're going to be forced to. But right right now, ironically, in much of Canada, we are being forced to drive because that's literally the environment's been designed in a way where that's the only rational option in a lot of places. Brent, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and explaining this tonight. My pleasure. How much caffeine do you consume and do you pay attention to it? Do you actually count or try to limit how much caffeine you take in each and every day? I know we don't those early days when you're sort of starting off work or starting off at university or whatever, you tend to drink coffee like it's going out of style, right? You figure there can't be anything wrong with it. It just, you know, it wires you up a bit. But other than that, you, you know, you, and then you get older and then you can't sleep and all, all the stuff kicks in, right? All the caffeine stuff kicks in that your parents would warn you about when you were drinking nine cups of coffee uh, in an evening, so to speak. Um, but this is a really interesting study, a really, really interesting research that's going on. It's about the impact of caffeine on your kidneys, right? How do you metabolize caffeine? And it turns out that we metabolize it, at least according to this research, we metabolize it differently depending on what variant of a certain gene that we have. And there's no way of knowing. It has nothing to do whether coffee keeps you up at night or whether you can drink five espressos and go and fall asleep in 30 seconds. It has nothing to do with how we react physiologically to coffee, at least, you know, neurologically even. Uh, But it does have to do with how our body metabolizes caffeine, for instance. Um, And that some of us metabolize it faster than others. And that makes a difference when it comes to, you know, absorbing caffeine and then getting rid of it because the body doesn't like a lot of it. Um, And so what it boils down to is that we're all a bit different. So sometimes in these guidelines, when it says just drink this much, it actually depends. It depends on you. Um, so there are guidelines out there. I gather it's no more than 400 milligrams per day for healthy adults. Um, so, you know, people who drink 300 milligrams of Italian espresso is three or more cups of coffee a day. 300 milligrams of Italian espresso. It's hard to, I mean, cups of coffee are hard to measure, right? Because what's a cup? <laughs> I see people carrying around urns of coffee. And you think that's a lot of coffee. That's not a cup. That's many cups in one cup. Um, but to find out more about this, we decided to reach out to the study's lead author, who's Dr. Sarah Madavi. Uh, she's in Toronto. She's a clinical instructor and in research uh, with a research appointment in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. And she is the one who dove into this idea of how quickly we metabolize caffeine based on this certain genetic difference that we have. Uh, Dr. Madavi, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So what did you set out to figure out here? That's always the usual first question when research is involved. What were you hoping to understand? 
I, uh, for a long time, worked with dialysis and chronic kidney disease patients. And one of the questions I've always had is, why is it that when we apply clinical guidelines in treating real patients in clinics in different settings, we don't always get the same outcome? You know, this is before I got into the field of precision medicine. But ultimately, one of the markers that we looked at, and of course, nutrition is sort of my core competency. One of the markers that uh, was popular uh, at the time and had been shown to really make a difference um, in consumption of caffeine one way or another was this enzyme that I tested here. I always tell people that, you know, caffeine or coffee is one of the most interesting things to study because people get very passionate about it. But also every day you um, hear either it's good for you, it's bad for you, or it does nothing at all for your health. It was a combination of these factors that led me to want to investigate this in relation to kidney health. So what did you find? Because I understand it's a really interesting finding and it comes down to genetic makeup, which is um, personal, that's individual, as opposed to setting guidelines for the broad population. And, and that's exactly it. So so what I found wasn't a straightforward, you know, uh, as is it good for you or is it bad for you? Uh, the answer really is if coffee is good or bad for you really depends on your genetics, uh, but it also depends on how much you're consuming. So it's those two factors that were very interesting because not very many studies about coffee and kidney health in the in the past, actually none of them that I'm aware of have, have looked at this marker and the outcomes and the measures that we did. Another feature that was very interesting and unique about our paper was how long we studied these patients. These subjects were uh, followed for a minimum of 16, an average of 16 years. You found that a lot of this has to do with metabolism and that marker sort of dictates metabolism to some extent. I know that's not a scientific way of putting it, but how we how we absorb caffeine depends. Look, genetics can determine how we uh, metabolize, absorb, and excrete different nutrients. So what I looked at here is a particular enzyme that is responsible in our liver for detoxifying 95% of caffeine from our blood. This uh, particular enzyme, you know, enzymes are proteins that, you know, we get the instructions on how to make these enzymes from our DNA. And it just happens to be that about 50% of the population makes a form of this enzyme that is not as effective. It's not as good at its job to clear caffeine. And, and those 50% of, the, uh, of a given population who can't clear caffeine from their blood very well, obviously, logically would make sense that, you know, proportionally, when they consume a lot of coffee, there is harm that builds up because coffee uh, in large amounts is actually a toxin to our body. And this is CYP1A2. You're not to be specific here, but this is a specific gene that uh, that we have or don't have. Is that right? We have the gene. So everybody has the actual gene. It's just different form of it. So there is a small uh, variation in those instructions that make the enzyme either, let's use the, the form of colors. So it makes the enzyme either yellow or makes it either green. Uh, and those people who get the yellow col color enzyme, for example, are the ones that are slow metabolizers of caffeine. So when they consume one cup of coffee, for them, it's a one to four ratio for the slow metabolizers. Four. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, it makes sense that we metabolize things at different paces. I think we see it in all kinds of different uh, things that we consume, whether it be alcohol or so on. There's no real way of telling though, right? Because you hear people say, well, you know, I drink a cup of coffee. It keeps me up at night. I must have slow metabolism when it comes to this. That's not how you figure this out. 
No, no. But I think that's a great question. And one that's probably asked or stated by everybody as soon as I talk about this topic, because so there's two different genes, the the experience of coffee that we get, the feelings from it, the jitteriness, the fact that we can't sleep at night, or some people can, you know, have espresso and just go to bed. Uh, that variation is expressed in our nervous system, specifically in our brain. So that's a different gene altogether. And it's not related to the detoxifying gene that is expressed in our liver for this particular enzyme. So therefore, there is no way for us to feel how we detoxify caffeine from our blood. And and that's unfortunate because and in fact, you know what, I use a really good example. So I can just use my genetics, for example, I'm very sensitive to caffeine. So if I have two cups of coffee, I start to feel the the anxiety, the jitteriness, right? But my liver is a fast metabolizer of caffeine. So the so the genes in my in my liver are able to really quickly clean up that caffeine in my blood. So you know, that's a that's an okay combination, because I have the feedback in my in my system to know how I feel. And my liver is efficient at getting rid of it. The worst combination, which I often see, is those people who are not sensitive to caffeine, so they can't really feel the effects of it, but their livers are also slow metabolizers of caffeine. So in other words, you, you could drink five or six cups of coffee, not feel a thing in your nervous system, but your liver is struggling with it. Exactly. And that is, that's funny enough, what my best friend is. So uh, <laughs> I was going to say, you, yeah, must be, you must be popular at parties with this stuff. Yeah, that's right. So we, you know, we have the exact opposite genetic markers. And you can see that ultimately, I guess the moral of the story is that with this particular genotype in, in the liver, whether coffee is good for us or bad for us, there is no way to, to tell or feel it uh, other than, you know, obviously studying it through a genetic test. Right. No, knowing what your genetic makeup is. What about other other caffeinated drinks? Because I think of, you know, tea and colas, there's all sorts of caffeinated products out there, but uh, you, you focused on coffee. Yeah, we focused on coffee because uh, traditionally, um, and for the longest time, I think in the, until in the last maybe 10 years or so, coffee was really the most concentrated and frequently consumed beverage. And, and still coffee is predominantly the most consumed beverage. In fact, you may notice, you know, coffee is actually the second largest commodity traded worldwide, only second to oil. So it's still, you know, a very important beverage because of exposure, right? And more and more and more people are drinking it too. I noticed, I mean, in Asia now there's more coffee. I mean, there's more coffee out there being consumed as far as I can tell. Absolutely. And it's a cultural adaptation, right? But with other other beverages, we can't negate them. And it's a good point that you bring up because there are other beverages that contain caffeine. Generally, you know, the naturally occurring content of caffeine in most other beverages don't match coffee. But there are energy drinks, different substances, things that you can take, uh, you know, certain brands of energy drinks that have extremely high amounts of caffeine in them, because that's the main ergogenic effect that people are hoping to get from those beverages. So somebody could drink no coffee, but have those energy drinks. And in one or two of them, you're already going to surpass your, your uh, caffeine allowance according to your genotype. So you know that a lot of us, you know, we get bombarded with uh, with advice about what we should and shouldn't be consuming. What is your advice then to the, your average coffee drinker out there? Yeah, absolutely. Look, people could be interested to find out more about their genetics because it just makes them feel more confident, uh, whether it's about, you know, 
choosing how much coffee to drink or other things that are that are uh, other information that they're out there. And other people are really not interested in this. But ultimately, if I had to give a general advice, I would say, if you're drinking coffee, you don't know your fast or slow metabolizer, limit to one maximum of two cups a day. But just be mindful that if you're going to Tim Hortons or Starbucks, those cups of coffee, one of them, like if it's a large one can actually have equivalent to three cups of coffee in it, right? So the 300 milligrams of caffeine, which was our point that people start to have these issues. I can even advise people that they can switch to decaf because a lot of times, you know, people feel very attached to their coffee first thing in the morning, look forward to it. It's a ritual. It's it's really, you know, a lovely ritual to have, especially when you're uh, in February in Canada. I wouldn't dare want to take that away from anybody. So, you know, just kind of transitioning to decaf could be a wonderful way to still enjoy the beverage. And and look, actually, coffee as a, as a beverage has a lot of health benefits and other components to it. It's just that this caffeine can be problematic. But yeah, uh, yeah so switching to decaf, getting genetic tested if you're interested, or just reducing the volume and amounts that you're consuming. You mentioned off the top that you had been involved in a lot of nephrology, right? Uh, the the mm-hmm. kidney stuff. What What is the impact then if the body is, the kidneys are not able to process this quickly enough? The results that we had from this particular study indicated that the kidneys were quote unquote getting stressed. And we can measure stressed kidneys by two of the main uh, markers that we tested, which is how quickly the kidneys are filtering the blood and what they're putting into the urine. Okay. So how quickly you you filter out the blood is that hyperfiltration factor, which is which is what we looked at. And the second marker is albuminuria, which is the amount of protein that normally is supposed to stay within your blood. But when your kidneys are stressed, they're not able to retain them. Uh, and they end up just, you know, putting it out in, into the urine. And both of those markers were independently elevated over the 16 year period of exposure when we looked at these individuals who were slow metabolizers and drinking too much coffee. What's really fascinating about this, I find, is just the whole broader notion of understanding our own genetic makeup and how each of us reacts to the many things we consume differently from, as you pointed out, from your best friend or your spouse or you know your family. You can all be different when it comes to how food or beverage, how you react to it. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, anecdotally, we all know that if clinicians were to ask every single patient, we know our own story. And a lot of times we might have some sense and idea about how we react to different types of foods. But it is difficult in some instances, such as this one, to find out uh, without having the proper information. Uh, But as a whole, you know, I I feel very optimistic that in the field of medicine, as well as nutrition, uh, we are moving towards individualized type care. Traditionally, we look at health guidelines, one size fits all, let's make an advice that benefits everybody. But as science improves, and cost of genetic testing becomes more affordable, we are really starting to see that you know what, that one size fit all advice really doesn't serve that one individual. And so if it doesn't actually serve the individual, it doesn't really serve the public. And this is a perfect example. Dr. Madavi, thank you so much. My pleasure. 